Welcome into the conversation. I am your host, Adrian Lawrence, and I am joined by Lynn Tillman Cherry. She's the Chief Compliance Officer of Greenwood. That is a mobile application digital banking platform for Black and Latino communities in particular. Welcome in, Lynn. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Adrian, for having me on the show. Yes, so Lynn, you're a payments industry veteran. You've also are really have been a fintech leader and you have a great hold on this industry in particular. So why is Greenwood necessary? Well, it's no secret that the black and Latino communities have been underserved by traditional banks. While they have been allowed to open bank accounts, the black and Latino communities are more likely to be turned down for loans. They are more likely to pay higher fees for their bank account. Not because the bank is necessarily charging them more, but because they are not as educated on finances and the use of the services to their advantages. Now, do you think it's a lack of education or do you also think in part that there is almost a predatory mindset to a certain extent when it comes to banking as we see in the mortgage industry, as well as when it comes to um, you know, getting loans that we see that there's effects. Uh, we've seen redlining and all sorts of industries that have really held back uh, BIPOC communities. That is true, there's no denying that there has been predatory lending, I think, from a consumer compliance standpoint, those things have gotten better. But when we go back to the core of the black and Latino communities, they have not been educated from young age to older on how to manage their money, how to generate wealth with the money they do earn. And then within their communities, there's not a black own bank on every corner that they can go and visit and get the specialized services that they need. I definitely agree with you in terms of there not being a black owned bank on every corner as we saw you know, with Black Wall Street being taken out. And we've mm-hmm. also seen over the years that essentially white supremacy has held black and brown communities back when it comes to continuing to advance for finances. I guess my only issue when it comes to education, just in part because it seems that there are plenty of things there out there and there are plenty of educated black and brown people and the resources are there for the knowledge. But it seems that there's more institutional racism that seems to be holding them back. So um, I would just love for you to expound upon why you think that the education isn't there. Yeah, so in my experience, I don't see a lot of black and brown folks in banking for one. Yes, there is education there. but Being in banking and financial services is not a career that's looked upon. It's not important to some people because they are basically living paycheck to paycheck. They think they don't have the the wealth and the power to make decisions that matter in the community. Now, is this something that it sounds like it's only based on your anecdotal experience? Is that accurate? Or do you have any research or studies to back that up? So from the educational standpoint, no research or studies to back it up. But we know that that black and brown don't understand financial services to the extent our white counterparts do. Oh, uh, um, so you don't think that black or brown people understand finances. That seems like a very broad it, statement, especially if you don't have any studies for it. Right. Well, in certain communities, we know that there is a lack of information about how to make the dollar work 
best for the, the person and their community. And that would seem that that would be across the board, not just something that is racially inclined, but maybe a class issue. Uh, not necessarily just a race issue. So it would seem almost racist to say that black and brown people don't have the education to understand banking or money, which seems well, to be we, kind of the premise. Well, so we're, it's, we're trying to uplift the community and give them more information about how to best use their financial services to their advantage. What yeah. we are trying to do is, is cause the recirculation of the black and brown dollar in its own community. Black and brown spend trillions of dollars in the industries you know, around the world. And so they need to use that to build their own communities such in the same manner that Greenwood existed and Black Wall Street existed. The dollar circulated 36 times before it left that community. Today, the dollar circulates one to two times in the black community. So we have to build up our black owned banks, our small businesses, medium to large black businesses and help bring our community back to you know, the, the past where we were wealthy, well doing and thriving for ourselves. Yes, um, I, I definitely agree with that. And I think that that is a great um, objective. And I think that's something that everyone would want to uh, have black citizens and brown citizens to feel empowered. Uh, I, I just think it's um, rather uh, narrow minded and also not necessarily backed up by research to say that it's a matter of a lack of education. And in addition to that, the thought that black or brown people don't necessarily know how to invest as much as the fact that there are a lot of institutional limitations. But um, let's go ahead and move forward. And so I'd love to know about the roots of Greenwood and what inspired its founders to go ahead and create this bank. Sure, so Ambassador Andrew Young, Ryan Glover and Mike, Killer Mike Render had a vision. They wanted to do something for their community that would uplift and bring the wealth and recirculation back into the community. So they founded Greenwood, which is based on a banking platform to offer best in class banking services, financial literacy, inspiring and engaging financial content, as well as services that um, you know, are delivered in brick and mortar banks, but they wanna do it digitally. Because that's the, the platform that our generation is familiar with and accustomed to. All right, and also what is, where does the name Greenwood originate? That, that originates from Tulsa, Oklahoma, the Greenwood District, which many, many years ago was burned down in a massacre in that area. This year actually commemorates the 100 year anniversary of that event. Um, and so this Greenwood pays homage to that. And, and, and I'm guessing that's why that the founders went ahead and uh, named this banking enterprise Greenwood. Uh, which would be an admirable thing uh, in order to effectuate that, especially since we know that the Tulsa, Oklahoma massacre, and we know based on the uh, the black communities that were there that were thriving in terms mm -hmm. of business and uh, economy, Wall Street, however you want to say it, uh, but they were making it happen. So I would assume that they definitely had the education and the knowledge. Uh, and so that is something that uh, we've seen, and so it would be great to continue yes. to have that flourishing aspect. Uh, but I guess uh, if I can ask you in terms of 
being more politically inclined. With this new administration here, what changes would you expect when it comes to banking and BIPOC communities? So I, I do see in this new administration more focus on consumer compliance. There is increased focus around risk in general because of cybersecurity breaches. COVID obviously has had a big impact financially on a lot of communities. And so this administration has a big job of bringing those things all together while maintaining the inclusiveness that that we are trying to accomplish. Yes, and inclusiveness is extremely important, especially when we're coming off of COVID when we've seen so many black and brown community members lose their lives. Mm -hmm. And so almost kind of banking would almost seem to have maybe a back seat. But it is important for a thriving economy and moving forward. And so I know that Greenward has a number of partnerships that go on. So can you tell us a little bit about those? Yes, I am not at liberty to discuss partners specifically, but I can tell you we are partnered with FDIC insured institutions to offer the deposit accounts and savings accounts. Those also will be shared, the deposits that are made into those accounts will be shared with minority deposit institutions. Once again, with the mission of giving back to the community such that those banks have the the money, the funds to loan out to black and brown who want loans, car loans, mortgages, and et cetera. All right, and can you tell us where they can find more information about Greenwood? Yes, you can go to bankgreenwood.com. There is a wait list there. Uh, We plan to open the accounts in the first part of this year. So in a couple of months, we will be opening that up and folks will be able to apply for their accounts and get started. Fantastic, thank you so much for joining us, Lynn. We really appreciate your your efforts and also um, Greenwood for sharing its opportunities for members of the BIPOC community. Thanks. Thank you for the opportunity. Welcome in to the conversation. I am Adrian Lawrence and I am joined now by Marissa Hochstetter. She's the founder of Reform the Sex Crimes Unit, which advocates for increased transparency and accountability within the Manhattan DA's Sex Crimes Unit and Special Victims Bureau. Bureau, excuse me. Welcome in, Marissa. Hi, Adrian. Nice to see you. Lovely to see you as well. So, what's the goal of the Reform the Sex Crimes Unit? Yeah, so we have a pretty rare opportunity in June. There's a Democratic primary to elect a new district attorney in Manhattan. Manhattan is not the largest prosecutorial district, but it is one of the most prominent. We think a lot about the case, for example, that office is bringing against Trump and others, Weinstein. And my campaign is really focused on drawing attention to sex crimes. So. There are many issues related to criminal justice reform that need to be addressed, that deserve to be addressed. And I believe sex crimes is one of them. And my own experience as a survivor and as someone who reported the crimes against me really led me to this place where I have been demanding change in that office. Now, if you feel comfortable talking about it in terms of your own journey through the system, I guess what was the most difficult part that made you say, I am going to stand up and use my voice? 
So the Manhattan District Attorney's Office has a history of saying publicly that they are pro-gender justice, that they support victims and survivors. And my experience was just not that. They repeatedly back down when the offenders are wealthy white men who access privilege, a network of privilege and bias and friendship essentially. So I was at the time the 20th person to accuse a doctor of sexual assault. There's now nearly 200 of us who've come forward. And this person accessed a pretty sweet plea deal because of access to attorneys and political contributions to Vance's campaign. And we've seen this play out time and again. Epstein, Weinstein, Strauss-Kahn, the Trump family. And so I was really motivated to say that this is something that really needs to be addressed. I believe he should have resigned. And I want to make sure that we talk about this position. A lot of people don't even think a district attorney is elected. They don't know what it does. They're not interested in it. But when we talk about criminal justice reform, they are one of if not the most powerful actor in the system. Absolutely, and it seems that in circumstances where the everyday person, you and me are victimized, that this district attorney would be the one to determine whether, hey, they actually pursue those charges. And in your case, it seems like the individual got a slap on the hand. And we want that not to necessarily be the case, especially when an individual like in your case has had hundreds of people come forward about the assaults. And so with the 2021 election for Manhattan DA, providing that opportunity to bring you know, new leadership and that um, you know, that's free from that undue influence. What kind of reform efforts do, does the sex crimes unit in terms of Uh, the effort that you are spearheading, what does it propose to change? So first we're focused really on transparency and accountability. So uh, I believe that when a victim goes in to report a crime, they should not be seen as work. I understand now that when I came into that office and thought I was, you know, doing the right thing, that I was essentially seen as, you know, one more person on a list that they had to deal with. And fundamentally, that is wrong. So we need a system where the staff have the resources that they need, the victims have advocates with them. Resources helping people navigate the criminal justice system. We need to hold staff accountable. So, how are these people being reviewed? How is their performance evaluated? Unfortunately, the criminal legal system essentially functions like a blunt instrument, and the the prosecutors are evaluated on wins. So, they're not interested in taking your case. Even if they think a crime was committed, if they don't think they can win. And so we want accountability for the staff. We want transparency. We want more information reported on an annual basis about what types of crimes are coming in, how many prosecutions are happening. And we want a unit that is free of undue influence. So in Manhattan, you see a really unique microcosm of sort of wealth and privilege that lets people access and buy their way out of crimes in a unique way that I just don't really think happens anywhere else. And we need to address that head on. Absolutely, that has to change because people should not be able to essentially buy their way out of victimizing others. Even though we've seen that continue to happen day after 
day. And I know that you all are spearheading an effort that is ongoing right now in terms of evaluating those running to for the Manhattan DA spot coming up. And so can you talk a little bit about that? Sure, so there's eight candidates, eight Democratic candidates running. And I've had really the great privilege of spending time and talking with many of them about my own experience and also sharing thoughts and ideas from others who are not willing to speak publicly, but really want to have their voice shared and heard. So we've issued a candidate questionnaire and I have an anonymous panel of victims, advocates, uh, both criminal and civil attorneys on the victim and defense side um, and other uh, interested parties reviewing these um, candidate questionnaires specifically on their proposals on how to address sex crimes. So we will be issuing a report um, in a couple of weeks really identifying those candidates that we believe should get a green light on this issue that we think would bring a fresh approach to sex crimes or looking at it in a new way. Because you have to remember that a prosecutor's tools are really inherently punitive and they don't address anything about the root causes of sexual violence. So like other areas of criminal justice reform that we're talking about, we wanna bring that same lens to sex crimes. And I just don't think it's there yet, people say, they're progressive and we, we take that, but what does that actually mean for sex crimes? Where typically the rhetoric is about more prosecution. And so the two don't really line up. And so our goal through this questionnaire is to kind of drill down on some of those, um, drill down on some of those issues and see who is really bringing a new lens to this, both a commitment to um, fighting against sexual violence, to ending it, to curbing it, and also supporting the communities where this happens. And so I look forward to being able to share that with the public. We'll post it on our website. We're gonna be doing some events in conversation to really share out what we think has emerged from this process. That's awesome. I think that that's fantastic and worthwhile work that needs to be done because also seeing who is going to be you know, possibly in that spot of being DA but also has a progressive fresh mindset to approach sex crimes differently so that they make change that goes a long way. So in terms of, I guess the next steps, once you all pass this you know, 2021 DA position battle, what do you plan to do next? Well, we look forward to working with the new candidate who's elected, Vance has not confirmed that he's not running again, but conventional wisdom is that he's not going to. So we look forward to continuing to be a conduit for voices of survivors and advocates to the DA's office. And I do connect with advocates in other places all around the country and hope that what we're doing in Manhattan can serve as a model for others who really wanna draw attention to this issue, right? The reality of a victim's experience in the criminal legal system is very different than what we say when we say me too and we believe you and we support you and speak out. And so I want to continue to draw attention to that issue and work with others who are interested in improving that response, thinking about how we respond to sexual violence and what the criminal justice system can do to support that work. Yeah, using your voice and getting justice are very different things. And you did mention Cy Vance, who is currently the Manhattan DA. 
And he's been a hot button kind of topic of conversation right now in part because of we saw with him prosecuting Donald Trump. But when it comes to prosecuting sex crimes, it sounds like he's kind of been lackluster. We don't have that much time left, but I'd love for you to give me kind of an overview and anybody out there who is voting in Manhattan so that they understand what they're looking at just in case he runs again. Ooh, well, there, if he runs again, um, please take the time to really read up on the other candidates. Um, there are some incredibly talented people in the pool who have years of experience, um, are committed to this issue. There are women, there are immigrants. Um, that position has, I think, only been held by white, like four white men, and it's you know, uh, history. So there's a really a unique opportunity to bring new perspective to the position. And um, they're very public, there's a lot out there and really take the time to inform yourself um, and vote. Uh, their early voting starts in just about three months. So um, you, can, you can vote early and vote on uh, June 22nd. Thanks so much. And Marissa, can you tell uh, the people where they can find more about the Reform the Sex Crimes Unit? Yeah, reformthescu.com. We're online and um, you can sign up, we'll get, you'll get our updates and very soon we'll be posting our candidate reviews. Thanks so much. Thanks for joining me.